Morning. Morning. Let's open our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23. We're going to be in a large portion of the text this morning. We'll be in Proverbs 23. Uh, When you go swimming, you ever uh, just put your hands out to your side and just let your hand barely touch the surface of the water, barely break that surface tension. You guys ever do that? Uh, sometimes when we preach, we do a cannonball into the pool of the text and we swim around in the text and get really deep. This morning, our hands are on the surface of the water, uh, barely breaking the tension of the text. We're looking at uh, the surface of this uh, series of Proverbs in chapter 3 of this great uh, piece of wisdom literature. It's important that we remember that this is wisdom literature. Uh, Genre is incredibly important in how we approach the scriptures. So when we approach wisdom literature, we understand that it's using uh, figurative language, hyperbolic language at times, and that we apply it uh, somewhat differently than we do a narrative or uh, an epistle or something of that nature. Uh, When we come to this book, though, I think it's funny. Um, When we get past chapter 9, we treat the book of Proverbs... As if uh, it's like a collection of, of fortune cookie sayings, right? Um, we can open to a, a verse and just pick and that's, that's isolated it and that's the only place that it has any meaning. Uh, there's no coherent purpose, no order, and it does seem that way um, if you never read the book. I mean, that makes logic. It's perfect sense, right? That that's how the book of Proverbs is designed. Um, That the God who has so ordered every molecule of creation that he knows uh, each path of every molecule and every uh, determined destination of every atom, that when it comes to the written revelation of himself, to the pinnacle of his creation, mankind concerning the exaltation of his beloved son, that he would have an entire book that's just kind of slapped together with literary duct tape. That makes sense, right? Oh, it's, it's ludicrous. Why do we treat the book of Proverbs that way? I think, one, we don't know what to do with wisdom literature. We don't know how to handle it. You're not sure? How do you handle Proverbs? And if you're still not sure, what do you do with the Song of Solomon? How do you handle that? How do you have a healthy discussion about that wonderful book? without allegorizing it incorrectly about Christ. It doesn't make any sense that God would have an entire book that's just kind of slapped together. That Solomon, the wisest of kings, would meticulously collect his wisdom sayings throughout his life in order to pass them on to his son, only to haphazardly throw them together. You can imagine his scribe coming to him, Solomon, king, how would you like us to put these together? I don't know, just put them in a hat and pull them out one at a time. Ludicrous. Now there's there's rhythm and rhyme and organization and purpose. We get uh, hung up because I think the, the chapters and verses that we have make us think there should be, this is where the thought should begin and end. That's often not the case, not only here in Proverbs, but throughout Scripture. So this morning, what I want to do is I just want to walk through um, Proverbs 23 and hopefully encourage you and challenge you. Those two things can go hand in hand. We can be encouraged and we can be challenged, can be called to greater action. This morning is highly applicational and it has 16 points. Give me more time and I'll give you a more condensed outline. Or no outline at all, for that matter. We have 16 points this morning, so we're going to move quickly. Uh, if, you, if you're terrified at that notion, uh, think of it this way. 
we can average two to three minutes per point, we're still out of here way earlier than anything Matt ever does. <laughs> All right? So uh, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to... Um, kind of break through the text. We're not going to read the entire text because of uh, the nature of the points and the way we're going to walk through it, but um, I want us to look at four words of wisdom that Solomon gives to his son in order that he might prosper. On the surface, when you look at chapter 23, you might think, okay, this is, this is a series of proverbs concerning money. But I don't believe that's the case. There's more that's happening here, more that's being addressed than just money, more than just wealth. It's how, how should his son engage the world around him? The world that is presented to him, how should he approach it? What should be his mindset? And Solomon gives him uh, four words of wisdom here that we're going to consider. Again, if we were doing more than breaking the surface tension, we could, we could find some more words that he's giving here. But we're going to look at four words um, that Solomon gives, four words of wisdom. The first word that he gives is caution. Caution. Look at verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler... Observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven." The first word he gives is caution, and, and, he, and he warns his son that you need to uh, have a mindset of, of paying attention. That's what the word uh, observe carefully means. It means pay attention, uh, be alert. I think that's one of the things that we struggle with in, uh, in our culture, but just in our lives, uh, naturally and, and uh, practically, we don't pay attention very often, do we? We're not very alert as to what's happening. That's why I think the greatest metaphor for our culture, for you and I in our culture, is that, that old story of the frog in the boiling pot. We get thrown in. If we got thrown into boiling water, we would have jumped out, wouldn't we? But none of us have paid attention to the rising temperature around us. And here we are, we find ourselves boiling. Because we failed to pay attention. We failed to... Take caution, take heed, as Solomon instructs here. I just want to kind of unpack the ways that he uh, tells us to exercise caution. So he gives uh, five ways for his son to exercise caution. We need to be careful in the world around us, careful with the things that we engage with. We're stuck being here, so we might as well be wise about how we're here, right? That's what we're told. So five ways we can exercise caution. The first way is to understand the situations that you're in. Look what he says in verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you. Pay attention. Pay attention to what's happening. Pay attention to what you see. Pay attention to your surroundings. Pay attention to everything that is before you. This is written to uh, Solomon's son. And he's, he's writing to instruct him. Listen, there are going to be times where you are in a ruler's house. Someone who has authority over you. Who is in a position higher than you. And you're thinking, who can be in a position higher than Solomon's son? Isn't Solomon the wisest? Isn't Solomon the wealthiest? Who can have more than Solomon's sons? And I'm just reminded of that great Bill Cosby moment, right? You remember when Theo comes to him and he says, Oh, Dad, we're rich. What's Bill Cosby say? No, son, I'm rich. You're poor. Solomon's saying, listen, son, you're going to be in circumstances where there are those who are rulers over you, who are in a position above you, and you need to take note of your situation. Pay careful attention. Observe carefully what you are seeing. This is not a condemnation of wealth. We like to uh, kind of swing the pendulum to that direction, don't we? Uh, we can't have anything. We can't have wealth. And then we swing the pendulum to the other side, uh, end of the spectrum that says um, everything is about health, wealth, and happiness. That's not what is happening here. Solomon is not saying that wealth is terrible. He's telling his son, be mindful of where you are. 
It's a caution against looking longingly at what is out of your, out of your reach. You need to understand your situation. You need to understand who you are and where you are. Our entire culture is built around negating this principle of caution. That we would be mindful of where we are and not desire that which is out of our reach. We were at the beach this week and we're riding around and uh, we're on our bicycles just cruising around. I'm looking at the houses, I'm looking at the landscaping and you know as you do, you look and you say, well, that's really neat how they did the mulch there. We could, I could do that. That's not that hard. Oh man, look at the track lighting down the steps. That's a really nice touch. I could do And you start thinking practically. I could do that. Well, what if I did that? And there was this moment where it hit me like, I, there's no, no way I could afford to do all of these things that I can do. That's what Solomon is is saying here. Be mindful. Be mindful of your situation. And and don't don't reach longingly for that which is beyond your place. Second, understand the risk. Understand the risk of that mindset that goes into the king's house, that goes into the ruler's house and says, No, this is nice. I can do this. I have to have this. I need this stuff. He says, put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Completely sane advice, isn't it? No, that's, that's wisdom literature. That's, that's hyperbolic language, okay? Put a knife to your... This is serious. This, Solomon is conveying, this is no light matter. This is serious. Put a knife to your throat. If you find yourself wanting this. If you find yourself saying, oh, I need this. Oh, this is, this is the good stuff right here. I have to have this. Put a knife to your throat and cut it. That's not... Foreign. We're not. That's not, it shouldn't be out of out of the ordinary for us because uh, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew five. You've heard that it's heard that it was said, "You shall not commit adultery." But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust uh, has already committed adultery with her in your heart. What's he say? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Did Jesus have a bunch of one-eyed disciples? No. Did Jesus intend for his disciples to take a spoon and gouge out their eye? No. But he says, it's better for you that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Anyone's right hand ever caused you to sin? Jesus doesn't have left-handed followers, does he? No. He's using hyperbolic language. This is how seriously you should take this issue. And that's exactly what Solomon's doing. This is not a light issue. This is not a, a, uh, an easy thing that you can approach. No, this is serious. To come into the king's house, to come into a position and see the wealth before you and think, oh, I need that. I want that. That is the first step to destruction. Understand the risk of what's at stake if you look longingly at that which is delectable in the house of wealth. Third, understand the deception. Understand that what you're seeing is not reality. Because what you're presented with is this wonderful experience that promises satisfaction and fulfillment. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. How's food deceptive? How is a meal deceptive? Well, it entices you into... Uh, being satisfied in that moment that this is the reality. It's not. I remember being in uh, Brazil one time and uh, one of the guys that was with me is like, I'm, I'm going to move down to Brazil. I'm, I'm coming down here with my family. We're going to live here because these people are so gracious and they're so hospitable and the food is amazing. Like We're just having these feasts every night. And I was like, you do understand that these people are dirt poor and they're giving up everything so that we can have a couple good meals and this is not their reality. He had bought into this idea that this was the reality. That's the deception that is presented at the king's table. His house and his food especially are deceptive because they offer this promise of satisfaction, of lasting joy, but in reality they're, they're fleeting. They offer purpose and meaning, but in reality, they're meaningless. We think that this is what's going to satisfy. This is what's going to make us happy. And it's a never-ending pursuit. 
do you guys remember I this is gonna shock you okay I was a uh, I was a bit of a nerd growing up and uh, I played video games a lot and I remember uh, the Super Nintendo you guys remember the Super Nintendo and they came out with the Interactor any of you big enough nerds to know what that is okay hold on the Interactor was amazing uh, it was this vest that you put on and you could plug it in to your Super Nintendo and you could feel everything that you were playing and this was in the height of Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam and Troy Aikman football I mean the commercials were like you were getting hit by a linebacker you were getting punched and like it was amazing and I, all I wanted was the Interactor. And, I, we, and my mom scraped and she got the Interactor for me for Christmas. And I opened it. And I mean, I just, I, I, I don't, nothing else. I actually had to be told to open other presents because I was just, oh, this is amazing. I can't wait to get home. And, you, and I got it home and I plugged it in and I put it on and it went, zzz. that's it. I mean, this is like 1992 technology, okay? It just goes, then you didn't feel anything. There was just this sound, zzz. You talk about disappointment. Yeah, I, I thought this was going to be the thing that, that set my gaming experience to the next level. It was going to make me happy. And it was a absolute disaster. It was a waste. And it, literally I used it a couple times and hit it under my bed. And I would bring it out and set it next to my bed when mom would walk in just so she wouldn't feel bad. That's what the deception of the king's table does. It always promises there's this thing that is going to make you happy. It's going to give you satisfaction. It's going to bring you joy. And it never does. So you should take caution and understand there's deception at play. Next you need to understand the cost. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. There's a great cost that comes with toiling after wealth. Working for wealth will always, always leave you not only unsatisfied and unfulfilled, but dead inside. It will kill you spiritually. And I think this is probably where we need to stop and, and just kind of examine our hearts. Because it's usually at this, at this type of point in a, in a sermon that you've convinced yourself that someone else needs to hear this part of the sermon. That you don't particularly struggle with this because you, like, you don't work after wealth. You're not, you're not a greedy person. That's not the way we do it here in the rural south in Maynardville, Tennessee. We don't work and pursue and strive after wealth to acquire wealth. Nah, we don't do that. Well, you're wrong. We might say that we don't toil after wealth, but really, we do. We don't want the money. We want the stuff that the money gets. See, we're, we're next level addicts. We're, we're, we're bypassing the desire for the wealth and we're just saying, I don't want wealth. I just want the thing that the wealth can buy me. The thing that the wealth can do. And you say, well, I, I'm content. I don't want a boat. I don't want a new house. How's your Amazon order history look? So maybe we should take heed and understand there's a cost to pursuing wealth, desiring to acquire it, toiling after it. Because we are in danger of a falling victim here. We church it up a bit, but it's still a desire and acquiring after wealth. There's a cost... Because it consumes. There's never an end to the, to the pursuit. And it costs you not only your joy, but your family, and ultimately your soul. Solomon says some profound words here. Be discerning enough to desist. Remember, what, what we're hap- what's happening here is Solomon saying to his son, look, when you go to the king's table, you're inv- inevitably going to be in this situation. Pay attention. Be mindful of what's around you. 
Don't be drawn in by the, by the nice circumstances or the wonderful food. Don't begin to fall into the trap of thinking you need this or you can't have this. Instead, know when to quit. Otherwise, it will cost you everything. Why will it cost you everything? Because you've misunderstood what is at stake. So the, the, the fifth way to uh, uh, have caution is to understand the game that's being played. You ever been to the, uh, to, the, to the fair and played the carnival games? With the crooked guns and the uh, bottle caps that are too big for the rings? You, 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 you've, at some point you've learned that uh, that basketball hoop is just barely big enough for the ball to fit in. And you know the games are rigged, right? But what do you do? You know the game is rigged. You're going to show everybody that you're better than the rigged game. And so you go and you hand over your dollar. And when you could have just as well took it and lit it on fire and at least got heat for a few seconds. The game's rigged. You're going to lose. And if you do, by chance, win a carnival game after spending 40 bucks for a $3 prize... You just think you can do it again. Understand the games being played. In verse 5 he says, when your eyes light on it, when your eyes light on wealth, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. There's two things at play here that, that you're always chasing. Because once you reach your goal, what happens? There's a new goal. There's a new standard. There's a new uh, position. But there's also the reality that, that when you acquire wealth, you just burn through it. David uh, used the phrase last night. He said, you know, they're right when they say that money talks. It says bye-bye as soon as you get it. <coughs> Understand what you're dealing with here. But this is not just about wealth. As I said, it's not just about money. Uh, this passage is, is speaking to his son about how to approach life, how to live in a world that is consumed with pursuing this world. So he says the first word of uh, wisdom is, the, is that of caution. And he gives a second word of wisdom. Uh, that word is contentment. Listen to verse 10. Uh, Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their case against you. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. I think maybe we can just kind of circle back like Jinsaki there. Uh, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he ain't going to die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Solomon speaks of contentment. Not only be cautious, but be content. It's a great need in our church culture. Because I think that we have uh, too many believers, too many professing Christians who are discontented in the life that God has provided for them. Discontented in the circumstances that God has placed them. Or maybe we can be a little more aggressive here and say, discontented in the circumstances that God has placed us. You. Maybe we need to hear what Solomon says about contentment. It gives us four ways to be content. To be content, make sure we're on the same page here. We're talking about being, being grateful, being satisfied, being fulfilled. Not in the hippie new age sense of being fulfilled, but like in the sense that, you know, I'm good. I don't need any more. So he gives four ways to be content here. First, uh, don't pursue what doesn't belong to you. Don't move an ancient landmark or into the fields of the fatherless. For their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Don't pursue that which, is, uh, which does not belong to you. Don't have a covetous mindset. Don't have a covetous eye. 
looking to what does not belong to you, looking to what your neighbor has, longing after that which is not yours. Does that sound familiar? That's the word of caution that Solomon began the, song, the proverb with. Don't, don't look longingly for that which doesn't belong to you. We, uh, we use that phrase, keeping up with the Joneses, right? We got, we got to do what, what they've got and we want what they've got. We would never do that, right? As good godly people, I know that you've never struggled with that and you are not currently struggling with this idea that you've got to keep up with the Joneses. That's why all of you independently came to the conclusion that Stanley mugs are the best. Oh, we have to be mindful here and not to pursue what doesn't belong to us. To, uh, he uses the picture of moving an ancient landmark. Taking that which isn't yours because you need more. That's what's at stake here. It's not that you care that someone else has something. It's that you care that you don't have it. He begins to say, just be content with what you have. If God never gave you any more, would you be happy? Saint, this morning, you. If God never gave you any more kids, would you be happy? Some of you moms are like, yeah, I might be. If, if, if God never gave you a bigger house, higher income, more time to take a nap, if He never gave you any of those things, would you be okay? I feel like there's this, this spirit of discontentment that runs through our Christian culture. You can look at our culture at large and, well, of course, there's this, our culture is discontented. No, 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 no. That's low-hanging fruit. Let's look at ourselves and ask, are, are we falling victim to the spirit of discontentment. How many of you look around and say, if I only had, you just filled in the blank. Because you know what your if I only had is. <coughs> There's a way to pursue growth. Pursue healthy expansion. There's a way to do that. But I fear that we spend most of our time longing for what God has not made us stewards of. And so we're, we're trapped in this prison of looking and longing for that which doesn't belong to us. Don't move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless. This is speaking to uh, deception, manipulation, and taking advantage of weaker vessels, weaker people. When you're discontented, you're tempted to compromise. So, first key to contentment is to not look longingly, not pursue that which doesn't belong to you. And the second one just follows up right behind it. Don't fail to hear instruction. Apply your heart to instruction, Solomon says, and your ear to words of knowledge. Verse 15, he says, My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Uh, let's just make sure that we understand here. For the longest time in my life, I thought exult and exalt were just two different ways of spelling the same thing. It's not. Exalt means to lift up. Exalt means to jump, to explode with joy. Solomon says, listen, if, if you're wise, if your heart is wise, man, I'll be so happy. I'll be bursting at the seams. That's the uh, southern translation of what he says in verse 15. My inmost being will leap for joy when you speak what is right. You got a sense of this. Have you ever, I mean, you've 
drilled into your children how you're supposed to behave in public, how you're supposed to interact with other children, and you're just constantly having to correct them and instruct them. And then there's that one time that they speak to someone, they're like, yes, ma'am, thank you very much, I would like that. And you're blown away. Your heart explodes, and you're, you're calling everybody. You'll never believe what just happened. So today, Charlotte said, yes, please. And, you, and everyone else is like, yeah, that's not a big deal. But you're like dying inside because you're so... That's what Solomon is saying. I will leap for joy when you speak what is right, when you do what is right, when you hear instruction and apply it. Don't, don't fail to hear instruction. The problem is that we know everything. That's where you say amen. Yeah, yeah. We know everything, don't we? We can't be taught anything. And that's an issue. Don't fail to hear instruction. Don't fail to heed instruction. Heed the wisdom of your parents, your elders, and faithful believers in your life. When you do that, you will consistently hear the virtues of living a simple life well within your means so that you can be a blessing to your parents, to your children, and your children's children, and to your church. You'll hear that constantly. You'll hear that counsel repeated often because it is biblical counsel. Don't be the one that what abouts everyone's counsel because you know better than everyone else. Show me someone that can't hear instruction. They can't heed warnings and wisdom from others. And I'll show you a fool who will always be chasing the next thing that will make them happy. Solomon says, if, if you want to be content, as you, as you walk through this world, precious son of mine, if you want to be content, listen to instruction, wise instruction. Hear it and apply it and make it deep in your heart. Otherwise, you will be the fool. That is the, uh, the antithesis of what's being said here in, verse, in chapter 23. You're, he's, he's promoting wisdom as opposed to folly. Don't be the fool that knows everything. And I think we can all say that we're, we're straight there, right? You don't need to hear gospel warnings because you know the gospel already, don't you? How about this? Um, uh, everyone needs to be confronted with their sin. Amen? Except you. I mean, you, you got... Isn't that the way that goes? Discipline is good, as long as it's not applied to me. Correction is good, so long as you're not correcting me. What do I have to be corrected of? It's a long, long list. Too long for our time this morning. So... Contentment comes by not pursuing what doesn't belong to you, by heeding instruction, and by not neglecting your duties. I, I love that this was in here. When I first read through this, I thought, what in the world is Solomon doing here? Verse 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he won't die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. I thought, man, what... He's talking about wealth. He's talking about uh, prosperity. He's talking about uh, excellence in life. What does it have to do? What does disciplining your child have to do? I believe he's pointing to the regular duties of life that get sacrificed on the altar of toiling after wealth. Our culture does this. It implores us to consider the God-ordained life to be the mundane life, the drab life, the second-hand life. Ladies, you have been oppressed if you are barefoot and pregnant, making your husband a pie. You are not. Men, you have been oppressed if you are uh, relegated to working hard to provide for your family. Leading them. And you're not oppressed. Our culture, our culture takes those things that God has said is good 
He said, no, that's, that's lesser. What Solomon says here is don't, don't neglect your duties. Find contentment in where you are. Do the everyday hard work. Because what's happened is we've allowed the derision of our culture to infiltrate our hearts. Right? So that mom, when you have been doing laundry all day and taking care, care of kids all day and wrestling with school all day, and at the end of the day, you get, you get there and you're like, what have I done? I've not accomplished anything today. I have not done anything. I'm going to tell on my wife here. She does this. She says, she'll get to the end of the day. She says, I, have, I don't feel like I've done anything today. Well, what did you do today? Well, I taught the kids school. I uh, braided Charlotte's hair. I took care of the garden. I uh, made bread from scratch. I decided to make soap. I built an airplane. Um, And she just goes through this list. And I'm sitting there thinking, you've lost your mind. You've had one of the most productive productful days. I wanted to say productive, but I feel I should honor Portia there. I want the most productful days that you could possibly have. But our culture has taught us to think that that's not a good day. That's a great day. Do the everyday hard work. Discipline your kids. Not just punitive correction, but discipline them. Catechize them. Guard their souls. Go to bed tired, exhausted, because you have poured into your children and your spouse and your household and then wake up the next day and do it again. Do you want to be content? Pour into that and realize that that is what God has given you. Have you heard what Solomon has said? Don't look at the king's table. Don't look after that which doesn't belong to you. Look to what God has made you a steward of. And love it. There's more wealth in pursuing a godly home than in all the storehouses of all the kings that this world has ever known. Do that which God has given you to do. If you're a mother of young children, teach them the ABCs for the thousandth time. If you're the parent of multiple staged children, go through the 100 days of how to teach them to read for the umpteenth time. Do it. That's what God has given you to do right now. If you're a father who's getting up to go to work, working to provide for your family in a job that is exhausting, and you come home to a house that demands your attention, go to work, come home, give your full attention, and go to bed exhausted with the joyful expectation that tomorrow you get to do it again. That's where contentment is. Realizing that what you have right now, you don't have because you didn't get a better education, because you didn't marry better. You have what you have right now because the sovereign God of this universe has ordained for you to have it and has made you a steward of this moment. So take it. Take it joyfully. Fourth, means of contentment. Don't forget kingdom reality. We, our minds just, they, they play tricks on us, man. Verse 17, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. How quickly we forget the reality of Christ the King. Christ, the enthroned king. Christ, the currently, presently, future, ruling king. But that is the reality. And we get sucked in. Solomon says, don't envy sinners. 
Sinners do not win. But we, we do that, right? Oh, man, look at that. They're, they're so manipulative. They're so deceptive. They're so untrustworthy. And look at how far ahead they are. You know why we come to that conclusion? Because we've looked longingly at the king's table and we have pursued that which doesn't belong to us and we're discontented. And so we're able to look at sinners and say, that, that's actually a pretty good course of life. No. Solomon says, don't be deceived. Don't let your heart envy sinners. They don't win. Remember the realities of the kingdom of God. They do not win. They may seem like they're winning right now, but they lose. And I would argue that in fact they are losing now. Never forget the reality of the kingdom of God that Christ at this moment is sitting on the throne. And that you are not walking aimlessly through this life purposely, but that you in this moment, in the life that God has given you to steward, you are walking under the dominion of King Jesus, serving Him actively, presently. And He is on the throne. You've heard the old uh, illustration before about prayer. We talk about like prayer. If Jesus was physically sitting in the room right now, how would, how would your prayer change? How would your conversation change? Uh, brothers and sisters, Jesus is in the room. Jesus is with us. Jesus is on the throne. How then will you live? How must you live? Live as if Christ is on the throne. Live as if Christ is the ruler of your life. Don't live in some pietistic, Gnostic fantasy world. That's what we find too often today. Alright, let's move forward. We've got a lot of points to go. I'm getting close to Matt's timetable here. Third word of wisdom. You have caution, you have contentment, you have conviction. Listen, contentment and conviction go hand in hand. The godly man can be content because of his conviction that Christ is sufficient and will provide all that he needs or can steward. Contentment only comes from conviction. Because if you're not convinced that what Christ has given you is what you deserve and what you need, then you will always long for more. You will always be dissatisfied. You will always be discontented. So the contented man must be a convicted man. And conviction guards against compromise. It guards the eyes as they look at the king's delicacies. It guards the mind as it considers the deception of riches. It preserves the heart as it longs for what it does not have. And it fortifies the will when the temptation of wealth and convenience seek to bind it and render it impotent. Contentment must be accompanied by conviction or it will be a contentment that evaporates like the morning dew at the first rays of the sunshine. Contentment necessitates a conviction that stands firm on solid ground. And we need to be careful here when we talk about conviction because... We talk about conviction, it can be easy to make bold statements and bold stands when it costs you nothing. I think we've been seeing that with Peter for the last 17 months, haven't we? Peter, I'll die for you. All these other losers, they may fall away, but I'll die for you. And what happens? Immediately, when the pressure's on, When it costs him something, what's Peter do? You know. He denies him. We'll let Matt exegete that over the next couple years. But we'll we'll understand that we're watching the same thing unfold today. A lot of those Peter moments are unfolding today in churches today. Right? Right? It's easy to make a stand when it costs nothing. When, when Bud Light hired a tranny, it was easy to not buy from them anymore, right? Because after all, who wants to drink fermented lake water anyway? 
No one's drinking that sissy stuff. So it's easy to say, oh, I'll never buy Bud Light again. Oh, yeah. When Target posted their sodomy display at the front of their store, easy to say, well, we'll never shop at Target again. Some of you men, you're like, yeah, I'm so glad they did that. Now my wife will save us hundreds of dollars a month. It's easy. And it's easy to take shots at them because it's culturally acceptable in our little conservative echo chamber right now to kick Bud Light and to kick Target and to say, we don't need them. I don't know if you knew this or not, but this is Sodomy Month. And every company under the sun is coming out. I didn't even mean that pun. (laughs) Sorry, that tickled me right there. (laughs) They're coming out in support of sexual perversion. Lego, Old Navy, Skittles, Disney, Queen Groomers there, Mattel, PetSmart, Levi's, TGI Fridays, Bank of America, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, our favorite source for myocarditis, Pfizer, Burger King, Hershey's, Kraft, Heinz, Ikea, Uber, MasterCard, American Airlines, Gap, Comcast, AT&T, the Department of Education. That one really surprised me. And Chick-fil-A have all come out in support of the alphabet Nazis. And you know that's not even close to an exhaustive list, right? So why list it? We're going to start a boycott of all these companies, right? Do what you will. What I wanted to show is there's something very important before us. It's not a few companies that embrace an ideology that actively hates you and everything you stand for. It's an ever-increasing, ever-expanding list that spans every aspect of our lives. We can boycott Bud Light because there are alternatives. We can boycott Target because we can go to Walmart. Well, guess what? Walmart's on the list too. This cultural moment is going to require more than belly aching and complaining when everyone gets along and it's convenient. This cultural moment is going to require conviction. That we stand against the wicked movements of our day because we stand for Christ. We must have a conviction to withdraw from culture, from corporate entities. A conviction to stand up for scriptures, for the gospel of Christ. And a conviction to promote that which is good. When do you ever hear Christians talking about what is good, what is biblical? Our comfort zone is belly aching about what's bad, not ever actually producing and being being helpful and pointing in the right direction. We have to be the voice that says this is what's right, promoting local businesses, godly businesses. This is a good alternative for you to place your money. My point is this. You can make the easy choice now. To cherry pick a few companies. I'm opposed to this because they stand for that. But what will you do when it's all of them? And you're forced to choose. And I'm, I'm encouraging you now, don't wait until then to prepare for that moment. As John Moody always says, stop depending On the people who hate you for the things that you need. I'm not binding consciences here, but I am saying that this is something that you should start to consider heavily. What will you do? That'll never happen. It could never really happen. I would just say to you read any history book ever, it always happens. It always happens with socialist, Marxist, communist governments. Always. And it will happen as ours is moving in that direction.
Solomon's pointing to conviction here. He does this for his son, beginning in verse 22. Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. Very quickly, I want to look at three foundations for conviction that Solomon gives. First, be defined by honor. Be defined by honor. Listen to your father who gave you life. And do not despise your mother when she is old. Honor, this is going to sound radical to you, okay? Ten commandments still matter. You still have to follow them. Honor your father and your mother. And it will go well with you all of your days. Listen to your father who gave you life. Don't despise your mother when she's old. Listen, we treat that like it's some kind of temporary commandment, right? That when you're little, as long as you're under 18, you've got to honor your father and your mother. No, uh, as long as your father and your mother are alive, you must honor them. And I would argue, because I think Solomon argues, that you must honor your father and mother even after they have gone. Honor. Honor them. By listening to the wisdom that your father gave you. Honor your mother by not despising her in her old age. Be a man that your mother is proud of. And a woman that brings honor to your parents. Be a person of honor. Be defined by honor. You want to have a foundation for conviction, to be a person of conviction. Start with being defined by being the person that honors your father and your mother. Be defined by truth. Someone says, buy truth and do not sell it. What's he said this whole time? Don't pursue wealth. Don't, don't toil after wealth. Don't, don't seek that which is at the king's table. Don't do that. No, the one thing he says to pursue, buy truth. Buy truth and do not sell it. If you're going to invest in anything, make it the truth. You're going to invest in something, make it wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Seek after it. Be defined by the truth. You and I know where the truth is. Be defined by it. Some of you can't be defined by the truth because you've never really actually engaged with the truth. You've skimmed through it once or twice in your life. You've listened to it a couple times. You've kind of dipped your toes in every once in a while. Brothers and sisters, I'm saying that if this is the truth, the eternal word of the living God, given to us as a revelation of Himself and of His glorious Son, and the redemption that is brought through Him, if that is what is in these pages, if this book tells us how to live and how to engage this world, and how to live in a way that pleases and glorifies God, so that we might have eternal life, if that is what is in these pages, then y'all need to start acting like it. Everything that we do, say, and think should be defined by this book. Amen? Then why isn't it? Why isn't it? Maybe you don't believe what you just amen as much as you say you do. Be defined by truth. Buy it. Buy truth. Don't sell it. Don't ever give it away. Don't ever let go of it. Buy it. Hoard it. Listen to the words that Solomon says. Buy truth. Buy wisdom. Buy instruction. Buy understanding. He is saying if you're going to hoard anything, this is what you hoard. Gather it in. Collect it. Acquire it. It is the one thing of value that you should be seeking to acquire. Remember, that requires, though, that you take instruction. This isn't, this isn't a, a, a self-puffing up. This isn't where you're gaining knowledge so that you can be the smartest person in the room. True wisdom hears instruction. Fools discard instruction. Because they think they know everything. Be defined by truth. Be defined by the truth. You want to have conviction? Have something that you're standing on. Ground that you're unwilling to give up. Third, in a similar vein, be defined by righteousness. 
The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. Be defined by righteousness. Let it be known that you are not the one that makes compromises. Let it be known that you are not the one that takes shortcuts. Not because you're going around telling everyone, listen, if I'm one thing, I'm honest, okay? You don't have to worry about me. If there's one thing about me, I'm honest. You, that, that should never come from your lips. It should come from everyone around you that says, hey, listen, that man right there, he'll always tell you the truth. That woman right there will never cut a corner. Because that's a righteous woman. That is a godly man. Be defined by that. When you are defined by truth, defined by honor, and defined by righteousness, then you will have conviction to stand against whatever pushes against you. So now the fourth word of wisdom. Conquest. Very quickly here. Solomon wrote these words that his son would prosper. Not eke out a meager existence, but prosper. What you find when you read the entire book of Proverbs is that Solomon doesn't define prosperity with bank account, with land acquisition, with wives. He doesn't, he doesn't define prosperity that way. He defines prosperity by living a godly life that honors his parents and glorifies God. So Solomon writes these words so that his son would prosper. Listen, you and I, we embrace and proclaim a dominion theology here. Amen? Christ is on the throne, and he has taken dominion, and he has called us to exercise dominion. And we will do that. And we will do that victoriously. But we need to be careful. We embrace and proclaim a dominion theology, not a prosperity theology. There is a world of difference between the two. A great chasm separates them. We do not define success by what we have. We do not define God's blessing by what we have. We define our prosperity, our dominion taking, by living under the rule and the reign of Christ and submitting everything, everything, everything to Him. And whether we have a lot or a little, we're going to steward it to Him and multiply it for Him, not for us, for Him. We have a double danger that we need to be aware of. It's not not just that we have a dominion theology that might lead us to drift toward a prosperity error, but we also have begun to embrace, as a church, a post-millennialism in our eschatology. That is the default eschatology of liberalism. Why? Because it can so easily slide into prosperity. That's not what's being preached here, what's being taught here. But it bears repeating to be careful in how we understand and apply those truths. We do not preach prosperity. We do not preach health and wealth. We preach dominion of Christ. That's what Solomon has done here. Solomon said, there is one true king that you must live under. And it ain't me, son. It's God. The entire book, all 28 chapters that Solomon gives to his son, points him to the one true king that he must answer to. That, in its essence, is at the heart of what we talk about when we talk about taking dominion. About prospering. We're prospering under a king who has all things and has given us what we have. This passage, I believe, helps us guard against the liberal, liberal drift toward prosperity theology because it, takes, it roots our taking dominion in the gospel of Christ. It roots it in the one who has perfectly exercised dominion on our behalf. That's why we come to the table every week. We come to the table because Christ has exercised dominion. We come to the table because Christ has bound the strong man. We come to Christ because He has satisfied the demands of the law. 
We come to the table because Christ did what Adam could not do. We come to the table because we are confessing that Christ is the one true King. And that we are under His rule. And we're recommitting. We're recommitting to that covenant today. Not only to God Himself, but to each other. We would hold each other to that standard. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this time. Pray that this word would penetrate our hearts. That the words of Solomon would, would saturate our minds today. And that we would make much of you as a result. Pray that as we participate in the table this morning, that you are glorified. And we are renewed in our spirits and in our commitment to the covenant that you have brought us into. In Christ we pray. Amen. I don't believe we have any visitors this morning. Is that correct? All right. Then at Mainerville Fellowship, you know the drill. If you are a member in good standing, we welcome you to the table. I don't see any members in poor standing, under discipline. So let's come to the table and let's celebrate what Christ has done. Remember what we have before us.